0: you have your Bibles with you, would you take them and open to the book of Galatians chapter one? The book of Galatians chapter one. I'm excited for us now as a church. We're going to spend a few months this fall going through the book of Galatians together, and I'm I have great hopes for this series. I think the Lord is going to use this in the life of our church. It's, it's a good book that focuses primarily on the gospel, the purity of the gospel, the preciousness of the gospel, the centrality of the gospel. And as this was useful for the churches to which it was originally written, I am hopeful and trusting the Lord that this will be useful for us as a church as well. And so this morning we're going to look at the first five verses do sort of a a big-picture introduction to the book of Galatians, let us know what we ought to be expecting in the weeks and months to come. And it's not simply an introduction, as though there were not going to be any meat or any encouragement for us in this text, but there's actually, on the contrary, quite a bit here. So we're going to read this morning Galatians 1, verses 1 through 5. And as is our custom here, I'll ask, if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word? our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word, your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word, given to make us wise unto salvation. And so we pray that it will accomplish its purpose among us this morning, that it will not return to you void, but that it will feed your people and bless your church. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I want to remind you something about the Apostle Paul as we begin. And if you've got your Bibles open, you can turn over one, maybe two pages to the left to look at 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 24. Here, Paul, in writing to another church in Corinth, is describing something of his apostolic ministry to them and giving them a, a brief picture of what ministry has been like for him. And this, is, listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, Verse 24. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And, apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I want to stop there and listen to what he says as he lists this impressive list of sufferings that he has endured in his ministry as an apostle. I believe as he gets to verse 28, it's the capstone of them all when he says, and, On top of all of those things, there is this, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. It's a very pastoral remark that Paul makes, although he was not a pastor in in a traditional sense that we might think of. He was an apostle. He was a church planter. We know from the book of Acts that he would go on these journeys to different cities, and he would travel, and he would plant churches there, and he would establish them, preaching the gospel, gathering the believers, at times establishing elders to be in a congregation there. And then he would entrust them to the care of the Lord, and he would go on, usually not staying too long in any one place, maybe a couple of years. And then he would move on and go to another city and do the same thing, repeatedly planting these churches. And yet even though he moved on, we know that he did not leave them, at least in his heart. He was, he was there. He felt the responsibility and the duty of a pastor to care for these congregations, which is where we get the majority of his books in the New Testament. These are letters that he has written to these churches that he has planted. And he has and he feels a responsibility for them, which is why he says, apart from all the other things, there is the daily pressure of the anxiety on me for these churches. And when we read the book of Galatians, we feel some of that anxiety. The book of Galatians is a picture of the anxiety that Paul feels for the churches. It's not like, the book of Philippians the book of Philippians is a joyful book it's essentially a thank you note that Paul writes to them for a gift he's received it's just overflowing with joy and thankfulness rejoice always i'll say it again rejoice it's it's encouraging it's not like 1 Thessalonians which is also a very encouraging book he says i thank my god always for all of you in every prayer and every remembrance of you he says you are my glory and my joy that's an encouraging positive book for the most part not so the book of Galatians in Galatians we feel the anxiety We feel the anxiety that Paul, the pastor, feels for this church. Someone has said that in Galatians we get a glimpse of angry Paul. He's not pleased with his church at this point, and he's writing this letter to them. On the back of of one of the commentaries on Galatians is this little tagline, and I imagine if this letter of Galatians were ever published separately, this is what would be on the dust jacket. It said, Among Paul's letters, Galatians burns like a firestorm of apostolic rebuke, Persu- persuasion and passion for the truth of the gospel. That is what it feels like to read Galatians, a firestorm of apostolic rebuke. But if in Galatians we find passionate Paul writing a passionate letter, and, and we do find that, it is because Paul is so passionate about the truth of the gospel. He has a heart that is on fire for his churches to know and to believe and to trust and to live out the good news of the gospel of the glory of God in Christ. And Paul as a pastor cannot bear to sit idly by and to observe his churches from afar when he knows that they are going astray, when he knows that they are being tempted and taught by false teachers who have come in and are destroying the work that he has done, breaking the foundation he's laid, and so he writes to them with anxiety in his heart. He's anxious because he longs to see people saved. Passion, sometimes the indignation that we feel in Galatians, is born from the passion that Paul has for the purity of the gospel. I think there are three main themes that we're going to see as we go through Galatians. Three main themes that define the book. The first is the nature of authority. Second, the purity of the gospel. And third, the life of holiness. Authority, gospel, and holiness and all three of these themes really center on the second one, the power and the purity of the gospel. He's going to spend essentially two chapters on each of those three. Just If we look at it very roughly, two chapters on authority, two on the gospel, two on the life of holiness. And the reason he talks about authority is because he is defending his ability to define what the gospel is as an apostle of Christ. And having done that, having talked about the gospel, now he goes on to say this is what a life looks like that has been impacted by the gospel. It's a life of holiness. When you know the gospel, when you believe it, when you have absorbed the truth of the gospel, it will naturally flow into this sort of life, a life of holiness. So today, as we look at the first five verses, by means of introduction to the book of Galatians, we see the first two of these themes, authority and gospel. And those are essentially the two points for the morning. First, Paul's apostolic authority in verses 1 and 2 and second paul 's Apostolic Gospel in verses three, four and five paul 's Apostolic authority and paul 's Apostolic Gospel so it 's always tempting at least for me it 's always tempting when I read these books to sort of skim over these opening verses you know i 'm turned to a new book, and I really want to get into it. I want to get into the meat of the argument of what Paul has to say so it 's tempting to skip this you know the first few verses will just be formalities it will just be uh, you know not really anything of substance in these verses, and so we want to skip straight to the body of the letter to find something edifying for us, but that would be a mistake. I think that would be a mistake in all of the letters, particularly in Galatians. Paul's opening sentences here are very carefully crafted. Paul never wastes any of his words. These are very carefully crafted introductory greetings and salutations that he writes to them, giving them... Hints of what is to come, and already in these first verses, defending and explaining what is to come. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Paul, an apostle. Paul is responsible for 13 books in the New Testament. Out of a total of 27, he wrote 13 of them in the New Testament. And in nine of those, he begins by stating that he is an apostle. In nine of those, he begins by stating that he is an apostle. What we find is in the four that he doesn't, those are generally the happiest of the letters. Those four, he doesn't state that he's an apostle. In the book of Philemon, that's, of course, a personal letter. To the Philippians, he doesn't. Uh, and I believe First and Second Thessalonians, he does not. But we find those are happy letters. They're, they're letters of thanksgiving. They're letters of joy. Uh, and He does not state that he's an apostle. In some of those, he says he's a servant. But in nine of his letters, he begins by stating his apostleship. But only in Galatians, only in Galatians, of all his letters, does he take this much room to explain and defend at length what it means that he's an apostle. Only in Galatians does he take this full, you know, first full verse to, dis- to explain to the church what does it mean that he is an apostle. In the others, he just states it, Paul an apostle. To the church, But here, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And we need to remember something of the context to which Paul is writing this particular letter. He says, verse 2, it says he's writing to the churches in Galatia. To the best of our knowledge, we think there's about at least four churches here that he's writing to. These are going to be churches that Paul planted on his first missionary journey. We can read about them in the book of Acts, chapter 13 and 14. Churches like Iconium, Lystra, Derby, churches that Paul had planted on that first missionary journey. And so this is a letter first that goes to multiple churches. This is not only to one congregation, but we anticipate that this could have been something of a circular letter. That one church would read and pass on to the next and share what Paul has to say with all of the churches that are in this area. And so Paul, who's with Barnabas, he planted this church. But then, like we said, he would plant one, he would establish it, and he would leave. And after Paul left, we know that false teachers came into the church. False teachers came into these churches and began to undo so much of the work that Paul had done in establishing the church. False teachers who did not believe that the cross of Christ was sufficient for salvation. They began to pervert the gospel, teaching that certain good works were also necessary. In other words, they no longer taught that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Instead, they taught that salvation is by grace plus some of our effort, by faith plus works, in Christ plus law. And so we recognize, just in hearing that, that that this is kind of a big deal. This This is not a small mistake. This is not people coming in and teaching, you know, um, millennialism versus postmillennialism. This is not pre-supralapsarianism or anti-dispensational lapsarianism. This is not some theological jargon that they're, they're messing up just a little bit. This is the center, this is the heart of the gospel. That they are coming in and teaching that Christ is not sufficient for salvation. That, that yes, you ought to believe in Christ, but then you must go on and perform certain works if you are going to be saved. And so this is serious. And what happened was some of the believers then who were there in that church would object and, and, and they, were, you know, they were no dummies. They would stand up and say, listen, this is not what the Apostle Paul was teaching when he was here. This is not the doctrine on which he founded this church. And so then the false teachers would simply poison the well. They, they would discredit Paul. They would question his authority to teach the doctrine that he had taught in the churches. Say, who's Paul? Who's Paul? Paul wasn't even one of the 12 disciples that Jesus called Paul didn't even know Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. He wasn't around. In fact, do you know who Paul was? Paul was murdering Christians trying to destroy churches. And he's the one who now you're going to let define the doctrine for a Christian church. And so you know, it wouldn't be all that hard. They Just look at Paul's past life, his former life in Judaism, and poison the well and say, that's not up to Paul. Paul does not have the authority of an apostle sent from Christ to define doctrine for the church. And so they were discrediting Paul's credentials in order to discredit Paul's doctrine. And so Paul starts his letter here by defending his credentials as an apostle. He has to begin by defending the fact that, yes, he actually does have authority to preach the gospel and to define the gospel and to say what the gospel is because he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. So he does this, when he starts to define and to defend his calling as an apostle, he's doing this for the sake of the message. And, and he does this quite a bit in his letters. He will d- defend the fact that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. D- despite what they might have heard about his former life, he will own up to that and say, yes, but that's not me anymore. And he does have apostolic authority. It's not because his feelings are hurt, or he, you know, he's feeling personally slighted that they no longer trust him or no longer believe him. He is doing it for the sake of the message of the, of the cross. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, it's a very small thing if I should be judged by you. And what we hear Paul saying there is, it doesn't matter to him if the people in the churches don't like him personally. He says, it's a very small thing to me if I should be judged by you. But he defends his credentials, not for himself personally, but for the sake of the message of the gospel because the salvation of souls is at stake in this. Imagine, if you will, what would happen if uh, perhaps the United States and Canada were at war. Now, I know about a month ago or so, Canada sacked, I think, Porter Ranch in one of my illustrations, and so this might become a theme, but imagine if the United States and Canada are at war, and things are escalating and it's getting worse, and and it's about to get to that point where where missiles are being fired back and forth and lives are going to be lost, and now imagine An ambassador from Canada comes to the White House, and he comes bringing terms of peace. And he comes to offer what Canada can do to put this war to an end. But now imagine that the White House does not believe that he truly has the right to be an ambassador from Canada. They do not accept his credentials as an ambassador. And so what do they do? They reach over with their finger and they're about to push the button to launch all of the nuclear warheads at Canada. What does the ambassador say at that time, I imagine he's going to argue quite passionately for his credentials as a true legitimate ambassador of Canada that he does in fact come with the authority to offer the terms of peace that he does in fact have legitimate authority to, to speak on behalf of the Canadian government and, and why would he argue so passionately for that because he feels personally slighted that the White House doesn't believe what he says he feels that his career is not now being legitimated by, by this other nation. No, because there are millions of lives that would be at stake in this. Because he knows that people are going to die if they don't accept his authority to define what the terms of peace are from Canada. That's what it is with Paul. That's where Paul is in this letter. He is passionate to defend his apostolic authority not for his own sake. Not because he feels personally slighted that his church is not recognizing who he is. He is but it's for the ministry of the word of God. It's for the sake of the souls of the people in these churches that he knows that people will die and people will not be saved. Glory will not go to God. Jesus will not be exalted in the churches if the gospel is perverted in this way. He defends his authority, not as a matter of personal pride, but because he has been sent by Christ with the words of Christ to preach the gospel of Christ. And so to reject Paul as the Galatians were being taught to do was not to reject Paul, but to reject the one who sent him, Christ. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 10 when he sends out his disciples. Remember, he sends them out two by two to go and to preach, and he says to them in his instructions, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So it is with Paul. To receive Paul is to receive Christ. To reject Paul is to reject Christ. Uh, in, in Galatians 5, verses 3 and 4, he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. See, he says what they're doing, they're not simply rejecting Paul and what he taught. He says, you have fallen away from grace. You are severed from Christ. In rejecting Paul and his apostolic authority, they are rejecting Christ as well. And this is why he defines his apostleship the way he does in verse 1. When he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He says, he is an apostle. His apostleship does not come from men. His apostolic authority is not from men. That means... He doesn't simply rely on the fact that one of the churches commissioned him to go and to preach. It was not other apostles who commissioned him to go and to preach. He doesn't trace his calling as an apostle to a certain person who sent him out to preach. But he also says, not only was it not from men, but it was not through man. It was not from men as the ultimate source of his calling, but it was also not even through men. This is even more significant. Because what he says when he says this, that it's not through men. He's saying, that means it's not as though God called me to be an apostle through the ministry of a man. For instance, as you know, possibly through the ministry of Peter, through the ministry of Barnabas, or one of the other apostles, one of the twelve. God did not use one of them to place his calling on Paul's life. Uh, for instance, the opposite would be true for me. I believe that God has called me to preach the gospel, but that calling did come through man. I would say my calling does not come from men. it's not That's not the ultimate source, but it does come through men. I believe that it comes from God, but I could tell you where I was and who was preaching and what text they were preaching on the day that, that I felt confident in my soul that the Lord was calling me to, to do this work, to, to preach the gospel. And the day I became convinced that preaching the word of God was God's chosen means for the salvation of souls and the edification of the church. And, and so I believe that it was God who called me into the, the ministry, but that call came through men. It was through the preaching of a man that he called me. But Paul says it was not from men, and it wasn't even through a man. There was no intermediary in that call. We can read about His call in Acts 9. We know the story on the Damascus road when he was blinded by the light, knocked off his horse, and Christ himself said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? That was the call. It did not come through any man. It was Christ himself immediately there with his presence to call Paul into the ministry. And when he says, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, it was in fact the risen Christ who came to Paul on the Damascus Road. The risen Christ raised from the dead by God the Father who showed up to call Paul to the ministry and give him apostolic authority. And so he defends with passion and with vigor his authority as an apostle because it was Jesus Christ himself who came to Paul to give him this message, to give him this mantle of authority to preach the gospel. Martin Luther has written a great commentary on the book of Galatians. And if you're interested in digging in in a little more depth as we go through Galatians over the next few months, it would be a great book to pick up, Martin Luther on Galatians. And listen to what he says. He has a very uh, candid remark here on Paul's calling. Luther said, In the past, when I was only a young theologian, I thought Paul was unwise to glory so often in his calling in his letters. But I did not understand his purpose, for I did not know that the ministry of God's word was so important. I love to hear this from Luther that when I was but a young theologian, I did not think Paul was wise to glory so often in his calling in his letters. And we can see why he might think that, because we see this in a lot of his letters that he does glory in the fact that he has been called by God and given this ministry. That, that he has this ministry to preach the gospel of grace. And, and Luther says, that didn't seem like a good idea to me. Perhaps it seemed proud. Perhaps he thought Luther was focused, or Paul rather, was focused too much on, on his own position, his own life, his own uh, attempts to legitimize his standing in the eyes of others. But then Luther says, I thought that because I did not understand his purpose. I did not know that the ministry of God's word was so important. Luther would go on to list four purposes for Paul boasting in his calling. Four purposes. He says, first, when he does that, it is to assure the church that he ministers the word of God. Second, it's to ascribe all the glory of his ministry to God. Third, it is to secure the salvation of his people and himself. And fourth, it is to guard against false teachings. So Paul is grounding all of his teaching in his apostolic authority, that is to ground it in God in Christ to assure the church that he ministers the word of God. It's a very pastoral opening. It's actually very pastoral of Paul to boast, as it were, in his calling because it's for the sake of the good of the people in the church. He says, you need to know this about me, not so you think highly of me, but so that you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, but I think it's very interesting what, what Luther says. He says he didn't think it was wise because... He did not understand his purpose, or he did not understand the ministry of God's word was so important. See what he's doing there. He, he reads a verse about Paul's unique calling to be an apostle, and he understands from that the importance of the ministry of God's word. The, the ministry of the apostles was those called by Jesus, eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus and, and their ministry as apostles was unique to the first century. We have no apostles today. We have no one who could start a letter like this, like Paul does, saying they are an apostle, not from men nor through man. Nobody could write that today. We have no apostles today. But this is what we do have. We have the word of God, which is the testimony of the apostolic doctrine. It is the testimony of the apostolic teaching, of what the apostles sent by Jesus taught. It has been recorded for us inscripturated uh, in the New Testament so that we have their doctrine and we have their teaching. You see, for if any of you grew up in the, a Roman Catholic church or some different Orthodox churches, you hear, how do we have authority in the church today? They talk about apostolic succession. that The first century had the authority of the Apostles. And they then laid their hands on other people who became apostles who laid their hands on other people and they trace it all the way down to the current day to to where we do still have apostles who could write this and teach with authority. But that is not biblical teaching. The Bible does not teach that, that we have apostles, it teaches we have the word of God. That that we have everything necessary for life and godliness given given to us here, that, that the Word of God is, is sufficient for everything that we need, that the man of God may be fully equipped. And this is why we're so diligent to defend the authority of the Scriptures. This is why we are so diligent, just as Paul would defend his apostolic calling, we defend the authority of the Scriptures, because it is not man's word, but God's word. It's inerrant, infallible, inspired. The Scripture is is God's appointed agent now to teach the revealed will of God for our salvation, to guard against false teachings. All four of those things that Luther said, this is what happens when Paul boasts in his calling, we would say, those now happen when we defend the authority of God's word. It builds up the church. It encourages the saints. It saves the lost. It gives glory to God. It makes much of the death of Jesus. And so this is why all of us ought to be like the Bereans. Acts 17, the Bereans, even when Paul taught them, he says they went to the scriptures, daily searching the scriptures to see if these things were true. Is what all of us ought to do when we hear teaching. We search the scriptures, see if these things are so, because it is the scriptures now that have the authority as God's word. They are the final court of appeals for us. And so Paul's first argument here is that he's going to defend his apostolic authority for the sake of the message. But now he introduces Paul's apostolic gospel. We said the reason that he defends his authority is for the sake of the gospel for the purity of his message, the preciousness of the gospel of salvation through the cross of Christ. That is what is the centerpiece of this whole letter. And so even now in this greeting, in this introduction, he introduces it to them. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever amen now he starts in verse 3 when he says grace to you and peace from God our father the lord jesus christ if we stop right there that would actually be his his traditional greeting in most of his letters romans first and second corinthians ephesians philippians second thessalonians and philemon that's the salutation grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop. That's his usual salutation. And in the other letters, First and Second uh, Timothy, 1 Thessalonians, he has some very similar variant. He usually says, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's his usual greeting. That's, that's sort of his standard go-to fare. Uh, and in comparison, what he says to the Galatians is very, very rich theologically. He, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ goes on, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. He goes on now and expands upon what he has begun, and the theological richness of this verse, we see the themes of substitution in here, he gave himself for our sins, we see themes of forgiveness. Redemption, sovereignty, doxology with the praise and worship at the end, all of this focused on what Christ has done at the cross. And so I think here the Apostle Paul, as he's surveying the churches in Galatia and as he's he's looking at these churches that he's planted, uh, and he's looking at the problems that now exist in these churches, and the problems were legion among them. I think the Apostle sees so clearly that at the root of all of the problems that these churches were experiencing, the root of all of their problems was simply a failure to understand the gospel of justification by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. He looked at all the problems that these churches were experiencing, and he saw, and he could discern, that at the root of all of those things, they were simply failing to believe justification by faith. Which is why we find... a letter like Galatians in the New Testament. He's writing to this church that has all these problems, and his main point is to defend the justification by faith. And so we tend to think, wow, this is a very theologically heavy letter. It's sort of a systematic theology textbook. We can read this and we can learn. And yet he he wasn't writing simply a, a textbook called Systematic Theology, What I Think About Justification by Faith. He was writing a pastoral letter to the churches to say, here you are, real people in real churches with real problems, And this is what you need. This is what God would have you to know in your church, to understand this, to apply this to yourselves, both individually as as members of the church and as corporately as the body of Christ, that this is what they needed. They needed the gospel. And so we we rightly think of Galatians as a a letter filled with deep theology, Uh, but it's also a letter that demonstrates so clearly how the gospel impacts everything we do, how the gospel impacts everything in our lives, we're going to see when we get to chapter 2 that that Paul gets all up in Peter's face in chapter 2, and he does it because Peter is refusing to sit at the same dinner table with certain people. Peter is refusing to eat dinner with certain people, and so Paul gets in his face and rebukes him and says, listen, Peter, if you don't eat dinner with certain people, then you do not understand justification by faith at all. We'll get into that much later in chapter 2. But this is why the book of Galatians is so profound that, that it teaches that our understanding of the gospel, if all that is is head knowledge of, of doctrine in our head and does not live itself out in the way that we live, in the way that we eat dinner around the table with certain people, it says we don't understand it at all. It won't do you any good at all. If you think you have a deep grasp of the gospel... But you're not growing in the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. If those things are not in ever-increasing measure in your lives, then you don't have that great grasp of the gospel that perhaps you thought you had. It says there must be a disconnect. So look at verse 4. Verse 4, this is how he would expand on what he has said Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. What he says here is simply the gospel in all of its simplicity. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And this is what we need to know. I think this is what Paul thought his churches needed to know. When writing a letter to a troubled church, he said they need to know that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. First, we need to know that we are sinners. You need to know you are a sinner. I need to know I am a sinner. It says Jesus died for sins. Until we're well acquainted with the reality of our sin in our own lives, I think the truth is that we'll make little progress in our growth in holiness and Christ-likeness I appreciated when I was uh, coming up through the ministry. I, I had many opportunities to share my testimony with people. Uh, to, I shared it with a number of different church sessions, with presbytery committees. Over and over, I was sharing my testimony to different groups of people as I was being approved for ministry. And I did it a lot. And I remember one particular piece of advice I got towards the beginning that was very helpful. They said, When you share your testimony, it doesn't have to be lengthy, it doesn't have to be eloquent, it doesn't have to be dramatic. Just focus on the central issues that you came to know that you yourself are a sinner and you came to believe that Jesus Christ saves sinners. Focus on the fact that you know you are a sinner and you believe that Jesus is a savior for sinners. In other words, they said to me, your testimony, it's not how God has worked in your life in different ways. It's not different things he's taught you. It's not how you used to be a bad person and now you're pretty decent. Your testimony is simply this, that you... Understand yourself to be a sinner in need of the grace of God. And you believe in Jesus Christ that he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And that was so helpful for me. I, if your testimony doesn't include those things, it's really not a testimony. But I'd encourage you, follow this example. Follow this example if you have an opportunity to share your testimony or if you want to talk to somebody about what the grace of God has done in your life. It doesn't have to be lengthy. It doesn't have to be eloquent. Just focus on the basics. That you understand that you are a sinner and Jesus is a savior for sinners. We have no gospel unless we know our sin. Many of the Puritan pastors used to say that a ship cannot have a mast that goes very high unless the ballast in the bottom of the ship also goes very deep. You cannot build a very tall mast unless the ballast goes deep underwater. And they said, so it is in our lives that we cannot go very high in our enjoyment of Christ and our worship of his attributes unless we go very deep in humility, unless we know honestly and thoroughly our sinfulness. And yet the more we know our sin, they say the irony is that doesn't lead us to discouragement and despair, but rather to greater heights of joy in the knowledge of Christ. Because we have that much more appreciation now for what Christ has done for us on the cross, they say, we will not make much of Jesus, the one who was sent to rescue us, if we don't know how badly we needed to be rescued. We must know our sin. But second, we must know that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us. We must know our sin. We must know Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. As we get into Galatians, one of the things we'll see is that we, we need to know this not only to be saved, that's true, but also to prog- pro- make progress in sanctification, to make progress in our growth in grace, to, to grow into the maturity of Christ. We must know our sin and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We must know that there is one way and only one way to be delivered from our sin because Jesus gave himself up for us. We, we see that substitution in there. He gave himself up for us. In our place condemned he stood. He took the punishment that our sins deserved so that we might be delivered from the present evil age and get the rewards that Christ has earned. He took our punishment. It's through Christ and Christ alone that we are delivered. Period. Full stop. Don't add anything to it. It It's through Christ and Christ alone that we are delivered from our sins. We can rejoice. Rejoice that Christ is all we need. At the end of Galatians, Paul comes back to his theme. Galatians six fourteen. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul will make much of the cross. Paul will glory in what has been accomplished for us at the cross. He will boast in this. You see, the Galatians are going to try to add to it. They're going to try to say that that we are delivered from our sins by the cross of Christ and the effort that we put into obeying the law, our good deeds in fulfillment of God's law. And Paul's going to drop the hammer on them for that. He is he's going to absolutely come down hard on them and say, if, if you add anything to Christ, you are left with no gospel at all. It's not a, a tiny little revision of the gospel. It is no gospel at all. It will have no power to save. It will have no power to build up the church or to give glory to God or to magnify the work of Christ. Rather, what he says is, it is according to the will of God, our Father, that we are delivered from our sins by Jesus. I think it's true that sometimes the simplest things are the hardest for us to get right. The simplest things that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, nothing more is required. His sacrifice was perfect. Nothing more is needed. His sacrifice is sufficient. And the message of Galatians is this, to call us to look on the work of Christ on the cross and Do not doubt that that is sufficient for you to be rescued. Do not doubt that the work of Christ has paid it all. is fully sufficient, has fully paid all of your sin debt, every sin you will ever commit, and then simply to turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus, to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. This is faith. This is true, justifying, saving faith, a renouncing of everything that we have that we could count as ours, that we would be tempted to label as our own righteousness and to look only to Christ, to lean on the righteousness of Christ as our only hope. John Newton said it very well. At the end of his life, as he was advancing in age, he said, although my memory is failing, I remember two things very clearly, that I am a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior for sinners. Church, if we remember those two things very clearly, that's all we need. We are great sinners. Jesus Christ is a great Savior for sinners. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we we come to you with great joy, great rejoicing, asking that you will give us hearts that boast only in the cross of Christ by which the world is crucified to us and we are crucified to the world. Father, that we might give up on everything that we have that might be labeled our own righteousness. Father, let us rest in Christ's righteousness alone, finding full, full, the full payment for all of our sins, the full remission all of our sin, Lord, that we might be brought before you in in holiness and perfect comfort. Lord, assure our hearts today. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.